comics, movies, music, video games, technology, Blu-ray, television. This is the HHW LOD Podcast Network. The world we know is gone. No Google, no Amazon.com, no email, no podcasts. In a world ruled by the dead, we are finally forced to start living. It's legal for this podcast to drink now. That is correct. So this week, just in case you're wondering why I questioned it, we will not be speaking about The Walking Dead TV show or the comic, but we will be discussing AMC. And we're going to talk about AMC's two of their big spotlight shows, um, Mad Men and Breaking Bad. So we hope you will enjoy this slight little detour, but um, with all the great content on AMC, I know a lot of folks are watching The Walking Dead specifically because um, they've checked out all the other cool content on AMC. So we thought, why not give it a little bit of spotlight? And if we can move some folks over to that awesome, to those awesome shows when they are get ready to gear up here over the summer, uh, so much the better. Yeah, if you've only watched The Walking Dead on AMC, you are missing out on two of the best programs on television, Mad Men and Breaking Bad. Uh, Russ and I have been wanting to do this episode for a while now, and uh, we are really excited to finally be able to bring it to you guys, the listeners, and uh, get your opinions on Mad Men and Breaking Bad. Absolutely. But before we get into the episode proper, as always, with The Walking Dead TV podcast, or in this case, the AMC TV Spotlight podcast... Um, it is brought to you by Discount Comic Book Service. That's DCBService.com. And since this is March, you have just a little bit of time left if you want to go ahead and place your order by the end of March um, to get it in in time. There's a lot of great specials going on. Of course, you can order um, issues of The Walking Dead, The Walking Dead Weekly. Um, I believe this month it's going to be 18, 18 through 21. Um, DCBS also this month has a huge special on a bunch of dynamite properties. And if you're a big fan of zombie type materials and love The Evil Dead, the old uh, Sam Raimi, Bruce Campbell movie, and then its follow ups, Army of Darkness, they have the first 12 issues of Army of Darkness for 35 cents a piece. Um, can't go wrong there. Now, Russ, 35 cents is a great deal, but. Let's say I, I was short on cash. You know, I'm a student. I don't have a lot to go around. Let's say I needed, like, to take an extra, like, 8% off that $0.35. Cents. Would there be any way for me to do that? You could. If you were a new customer to DCBService.com, you could get – you could put in the code WD8 and get an extra 8% off your order if you're a first-time customer or if you have an order from DCB Service in over – in tw- at least 12 months. Um, so you can get all kinds of great deals um, if you're interested in checking out some other stuff, I mean, they've got tons of great discounts on you know mainline Marvel and DC stuff. Most of the Marvel and DC titles are all 40% off of cover price um, for the monthly comics. Some of them even more than 
you know, they've got some great stuff from Dark Horse that does a lot of the Star Wars and other licensed properties. So if you're just kind of a big licensed property type of type of person, there's a lot of stuff from Conan. There's tons of trades that you can order, and typically the prices on the trades range from anywhere from like 35 to 50 percent off. So you are pre-ordering three months in advance, which is why they're able to give you the great discounts and deals. But um, we've all been customers of them for quite some time. We used them for a long time before they became sponsors of the show. So I can definitely, um, I used them before I even started up um, either this podcast or the Legion of Dudes. So um, again, can't speak highly enough. They're super great to work with. Um, you know, never have any trouble. Um, I, you know, I had a couple um, comics one time that were kind of mangled in the shipping, totally not their fault. And they, they made it good. They shipped me out new ones, didn't ask me to send the old ones back. They, they you know, totally took, took your word for it. So they're just awesome, awesome guys to deal with. Um, met them in person um, a couple times, uh, Cameron and Zach Crucy. Great guys to, to talk to as well. So check them out at dcbservice.com. Don't forget that WD8 code to save yourself an additional 8% if you're a brand new customer. Absolutely. So we also, um, as you're listening to this podcast, I guess, what is it, the end of March? Isn't that right, Jordan? Uh, uh, yeah, this will be our second episode for the month of March. Uh, we'll be back next month with commentaries for season one. But we, have, we are going to be featured in, the, um, in Scream magazine. Uh, doing an article. So we were lucky enough to be contacted by the folks at uh, Scream Magazine, and uh, we kind of did this um, almost like uh, Legion of Dudes on the Legion of Dudes uh, kind of setup, where we uh, we asked each other a bunch of questions, took some questions that we had been getting from the Twitter feed and from the listeners, and we all kind of took turns at answering them about the show and what we thought. Um, so it was really a lot of fun to do. Um, it's, it's a UK magazine, and you can... Um, Check them out at ScreamMagazine.com. So it's S-C-R-E-A-M-M-A-G-A-Z-I-N-E. So Scream Magazine. So keep an eye out for that. Um, we'll be in the issue that comes out, I guess, the last day of March, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I believe the 31st. So that's going to be yes. really awesome. Yeah, so um, as John mentioned in the last episode, um, episode 20 of Walking Dead TV podcast, we'll be trying to buy up as many copies as we can and um, shouting out to our family that we actually got published in a magazine. So um, – Really, really looking forward to that. It was a great honor to, to be a part of that, and we thank those guys a lot. So, without further ado, I, I guess um, AMC's had, had a couple, um, you know, The Walking Dead is not their first foray into television, but it is an early foray into television. And I guess the first real hit they had um, was Mad Men. Not only was it the first hit they had, it was their first original programming, period. So, a, a nice, uh, nice win for them right out of the gate. The first episode premiered on AMC on July 19th of 2007. So, you know, within several months when the next season starts to air up, it'll be, you know, coming in on four years since the first season premiere when the fifth season will start. Um, and I believe it's been renewed even for a sixth season, if I'm not mistaken. Is that, is that? Well, it's a bit iffy right now. They have yeah. been renewed for a fifth season. They have not started shooting or writing it yet, though. They're having contract issues with getting all the money they need to get into the right hands. And so it, there's a possibility, the very strong possibility at this point, that there will be no season this year and it won't be till next year that we get more Mad Men. That's a shame, but it gives our listeners even more time to catch up on the first four seasons. Yes, yes. And so if you're not familiar with the concept, and I, I must say, I wasn't really into it at first. My dad actually was a, a big fan of the show and it was like, he, he's you know, the premise is... It's an ad agency on Madison Avenue in the – when the show starts, it's like 1960. 
and uh, you know it is very much a period piece of uh, you know I wouldn't even call this post World War II at this point. This is like post um, Korean Korean War height of the Cold War kind of thing going on. And um, Jordan, I think I think you described the the what the Wikipedia entry describes the show. Um, <laughs> yeah, the the Wikipedia entry I got a kick out of this. It says Mad Men depicts parts of American society and culture of the 1960s, highlighting cigarette smoking, drinking, sexism, feminism, adultery, homophobia, racism, and anti-Semitism. Yeah, so it's I amazing. got a kick out of that. So. Yeah, it's it's kind of funny in a way. If it, you know, unfortunately, if, if, if a lot of it wasn't true, um, but it really is interesting as a society to see from 1960 to you know 2010, 2011. Um, how far we've come because I, you know, I've talked to, you know, you know, like I talked to my dad and I talked to other, you know, f- you know, folks that were around during this time. And they're like, yeah, that's a pretty accurate depiction of, you know, how, especially in that area, you know, the high pressure, high sales area of, you know, downtown New York city in that area. But I have never, the way I describe this show is I have never watched a show that so engrosses itself in the period in which it's set than anything I've ever seen. And there's a lot of shows that are period pieces that take place in, um, in the past, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, whatever. Um, and sometimes it could be a little obnoxious where everything is in your face. Um, that it's, you know, it's like, look, we're in the 80s. Look, we're in the 60s. You know, it's, it's very in your face. I almost compare this to kind of like that 70s show. That 70s show to me did the period well, where you knew based on the way people were dressed and the things they were doing and the stuff they talked about, it was the 70s, but they didn't throw it in And the title, of course. Yeah, of course, the title. But (laughs) they didn't throw it in your face. And Mad Men, it's amazing how they get the sets so right. They get the clothes so right. They get the way that people act. I mean, everybody in the show smokes. Everybody smokes. They smoke in the office. They smoke in the car. They smoke when they're walking. They smoke in the restaurant. And they smoke in the hospitals. The doctors smoke. Yes. The you doctors know, come. Yeah. It's nuts. And, and it's amazing that, I mean, I'm, you know, Jordan, I'm, I'm a little bit older than, than you are. Um, and I, you know, can still remember as a kid, or even, even almost as an adult, where it wasn't quite as taboo to smoke um, everywhere, especially as a kid, you know, in the 70s. Um, you know, mid to late seventies, you know, people smoked everywhere and it was, you know, nobody really thought about it too much. And, and, you know, we kind of saw in the, really in the nineties, I think is when it really took off that it really started to to get frowned upon and, and, um, and put on the back burner for a lot of places, but it is front and center, um, in this show and the drinking, you know, people drinking in the morning, in the middle of the day at work. Um, it's just a part of their lives, you know, for them to drink and smoke and wine and dine clients, um, all the time. So, so the main character of, of the show is named Don Draper, and he is an executive at, at Sterling Cooper Advertising Agency in Manhattan. And um, he's played by, brilliantly played, in my opinion, by John Hamm, who you know, kind of wasn't you know, super known before the show. I think he's gotten a lot more juice uh, since, since you know, Mad Men has kind of taken off. Um, and, and it's the story basically of him, um, his wife, um, and his two children, and it really focuses on his um, work at the ad agency and his interaction with those around him. And we find out that Don is a Korean War vet, and he lives in the suburbs, commutes into the city. Sometimes he doesn't go home, and we find out very early that Don likes to drink, smoke, and cheat on his wife, and uh, really makes no bones about it. And um, 
we find out he's not really the greatest guy on the planet, um, but yet at the same time you really like him, or I guess at least you want to be like him because um, you know Don has all the cachet, gets all the women. I mean, he is he is it, and he is known to be kind of the it person uh, in and around the circles he runs in. Definitely, when he's on the ball, there's no one there's no one you would want to be more than Don Draper. Yes, yes. Um, so it's, it's really kind of – the whole show is this interesting um, – I find fighting with myself back and forth as to whether you know, I try – it's almost like you try not to like him, but you can't help but like him. Because when he, when he truly is being a decent guy, um, he really comes across as being a decent guy. But when he slips into just being a, um, you know, an adulterer and, and just a really bad guy, he could really turn it on when he wants to. Mm-hmm. Um, so we start, you know, we find out that again, Don is kind of this exec at the ad agency. He works for um, the two older gentlemen that that run the agency. Um, Sterling, Roger, Roger, Roger Sterling, and Bertram Cooper. Yeah, yeah, Bertie. <laughs> Bertram Cooper, who is even older than um, than Roger Sterling, and it turns out it's Roger Sterling Senior that started the firm with Bert Cooper, and Roger Sterling Senior has since passed on, and his son. Um, who is is still, he was he's a World War II vet, so he's at this point probably in his what, what would you say early fifties, maybe close. Yeah, I mean, to- it's tough to tell because the actor John Slattery, who is awesome, um, has is is already completely white haired. So mm-hmm. judging that's a bit tough, but yeah, we're in the sixties. He's definitely pushing. He's definitely pushing fifty, at least in the beginning yeah. of the show. Um. And Don, who's you know mid late thirties, you know pretty close to his his actual age, um, you know in, in in real life as well. So he kind of acts as this great middle, you know, kind of this middle character between the very straight laced, very eccentric Burt Cooper, who for the most part stays behind the scenes and doesn't really run things day to day for at Sterling Cooper, but just kind of is like a board member and likes his office with his uh, interesting paintings that he spends a lot of money on. And Roger Sterling is kind of the the head, you know, ad man or the account guy um, in the firm. I mean, he is the one that brings in the business. His his biggest client is Lucky Strike cigarettes, and um, so everywhere you look in the show, there's a pack of Lucky Strikes sitting everywhere. <laughs> um, and Roger is the epitome of um, you know pretty much an alcoholic and and a womanizer, and um, he he has an kind of an on again off again affair with um, Joan Holloway, who's played by the lovely, lovely Christina Hendricks, and this is kind of the show that really I think put her um, on the map. You know, she she had some parts. She was uh, she was Mal's quote unquote wife in Firefly. If if you're familiar with that show, good old Saffron. Yes, yes. And she's shown up in Mad Men, and she's kind of got the reputation for being, um, you know, beautiful but yet curvy woman. So she's not, you know, the super, you know, stick thin model. Um, she's, you know, definitely full figured, but just absolute knockout. You know, she's just an absolute knockout, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we're kind of our window into the into the series when it starts is um, Peggy Olson, who's played by Elizabeth Moss, and she's kind of the young, naive, new to the city, you know. Um, doesn't have a lot of life experience and um, is thrown into the secretary pool and becomes Don Draper's secretary. And one of the things, and, and you tell me, Jordan, but one of the things I find more interesting than anything about this show is the interaction and the relationship between Don and Peggy. Oh, definitely. Um, and and it's, 
it could easily become cliched and um you know you could find out that you know don you know is sleeping with with peggy um but it doesn't work out that way um and i don't think that's any spoiler you could tell that you know pretty much right away that that's not the road the show's going to take um and peggy slowly works her way from being just an average secretary to being a pretty important part of the firm um and and like i said for for some reason don has t- kind of taken an interest in peggy and helps her um at several points along the show when maybe he wouldn't have to or you're not really sure it's almost like he sees something in her um you know and and, and sees something that's that's worth you know moving above um you know where the other women are because it's a very um it's a very chauvinistic you know environment they live in you know women are looked down upon they're all secretaries they're you know they're there to you know you know serve the men that work in the firm and it's it, you know there's no there's no two ways about it so for for you know this this woman to be able to kind of raise herself above that and to and to have a place is is uh is is a big deal and it's a big part of the show um in many ways i would go so far as to call her almost a secondary protagonist um mm-hmm. of the story we get you know in the 60s were a very turbulent and and change worthy time Don is in many ways the old guard who is going to have to either adapt or get trampled by the incoming younger people who are, have to adapt to this brand new demographic of teenagers as, as they're at people, the, the Beatle generation or Beatles generation rather. And, and Peggy is, like you said, she's the wide-eyed newcomer. But not only is she a newcomer, being a woman in this world, she is the first person to jump many of the hurdles that come her way in this universe and – we get the old guard in Don and we get the new guard in Peggy and it's a very interesting dichotomy. Their relationship, as you talked about before, through four seasons now has had many ups and downs with them mad at each other, them happy with each other's work. And one of the show's many strengths is the way it lets things just kind of simmer and simmer. And oftentimes you're not going to hit the nail on the head right at first. Two characters might be thinking something, but they're not going to say it. Uh, that that anger or that apprehension or that, that respect even might just kind of boil beneath the surface. But there's a scene in season four, I'm, I'm sure you remember it, where Don, as Peggy's boss, kind of takes credit for an ad that she put a lot of work into. And you've had four years of their relationship at this point to build up to this moment where she finally is so jealous of him. And so she doesn't understand exactly why he won't just say thank you. She goes to this man who's her boss, who's her mentor in many respects, and who has bailed her out of many a situation, um, as I'm sure we'll talk about later. But uh, th- the scene between them where it finally – everything just comes to the surface and you've had four years of long-form storytelling to build up to the moment. It's an absolutely incredible scene where he – they just kind of blow up and he, he tells her – I'm not going to tell you thank you because that is what the money is for. That is what you're paid to do. This is your job. And the kind of um, the realization they both come to in that scene, I I believe it's the episode The Suitcase, which is one of the best episodes of TV last season. Uh, It's an absolutely wonderful set of scenes there. That's probably my favorite episode. It's funny. Season four was not my favorite season of the show. But I think that episode, The Suitcase, was probably my favorite episode of Mad Men. Um in in all four seasons it was definitely the high point of a season that was good but not outstanding and um you're you're right that scene was just incredible, incredible. well se- season 4 was a very different season for the show in many ways um without getting too much into spoiler territory they had changed offices 
Uh, there was a lot of new characters and a lot of old characters that weren't around anymore for various reasons. Don was going through a very tumultuous time in his life, to put it the least, and it was kind of him at his lowest. Season four was very different for the show, yet at the same time fit in very well. So a lot of people had very mixed feelings for it, but I would not be surprised if that episode... I should take that back. I was going to say if it wins the Emmy, but I guess it's already passed there. Yeah. But it was One definitely the- a very Emmy, Emmy-worthy Emmy episode there. Yeah. One of the... um. So when the show starts, again, like we talked about, it's, it's 1960. You know, we get you know a, a a beat on you know what's going on in society and how and how this world is working. And like I said, it's very entrenched in the 60s. It's very heavy in the ad agency. So it's really kind of cool to see a lot of real products and real um, ideas that come across this firm because they are not the biggest um, firm in on Madison Avenue, um, but they are pretty stable. They do have a reputation, so it's kind of cool to see these old 1960 TV um, and radio ads that they come across and the stuff that they work and they, they are promoting, and a lot of them are for products that were around at the time but are no longer around. So that's kind of always kind of fun to have that nostalgia factor with it. Um, but season one, and even I guess part of season two really, it, it's really a mystery. I mean it, it's really who is Don Draper. Um, and we, we start to find, and, and we're not going to spoil it because it's, it's definitely worth watching, um, but you find out pretty early on within the first couple episodes that Don Draper is n- probably not who you think he is, um, but you don't really know who he is. And it's a very slow burn that they reveal more and more and more about who Don Draper really is and what he's about and how, how his life has kind of panned out the way it is and how um, that affects his relationship with his wife and with his kids um, and, and everything else. And it really starts to pick up. But th- the other cool thing about the show is it starts in 1960. By the end of the first season and the start of the second season, we jump ahead, what is it, 14 months, I think, Jordan? I think, yeah, I think that's the longest jump in between seasons yeah. that we get. So we start um, season two, and I guess it's what, it's um, early 1962, I think, February of 62. Uh, sounds about right. Yeah. And then, and then again, the season pretty much takes you through almost an entire year. So you'll have episodes that you know they'll they'll you know go through the summer, they'll go through you know like spring break, and how that how that you know affects the agency with you know people that have kids and you know taking annual summer trips and um, all that kind of stuff. And then you know it gets into the holiday season and whatever. And then by by season three, we've hit um, yeah early sixty three. But but by the end of of season three, um, you know, for those of you obviously, you know, well versed in, in American history, when we get to the the second to the last season of of, or I'm sorry, the second to the last episode of season three, we get to an episode called the Grown Ups, and this episode focuses on the Kennedy assassination, and this I was at the edge of my seat, and I, you know, I obviously we've seen other shows and movies and things like that that depict people's reactions to the Kennedy assassination and it always when it's done is very in your face and very like like everybody was waiting for it and you know knew something was going to happen and they rea- and they react to it and this show took a very different take to um those series of events and some people just were going about their lives and didn't realize it until you know after it had happened and then you know, to see everybody glued to their television, and everybody crying, and everybody reacting, and it was it, it was very, very moving, very emotional, um, and and just an incredible portrayal of the of that period in American history. Um, I've never seen anything on television like it. 
And the show has done a, a great job throughout the seasons of ending seasons or at least punctuating episodes with actual historical events. Uh, season two ends with the Cuban Missile Crisis, season three with the Kennedy assassination or, or right around there. And it's all it, it, like you said, it's always kind of that on the fringe. How how would real people have heard about these news events? How would it would have affected them? And it's not that in your face, usually of, um, you know, like like you would see on many other television shows. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the performances in the show just all the way around are outstanding. There's a lot of um, guest appearances that show up. Um, the one, I guess, detriment for me as a, as a character, and I think it gets a lot of juice on the boards, and if you if you listen to other folks talk about it, is January Jones's portrayal of of um, of Betty Draper. And I just, I mean, nice looking woman. But I don't know if it's just the way that the show is written or directed or if it's purposely meant for her character to be um, very dry, very stale, almost kind of annoying. I don't know if it's – like I said, I don't know if it's done that way on purpose. And She's it's very funny. childlike in many ways. Exactly, exactly. And there's many instances of that where that becomes very apparent and, and a little creepy to be honest with you. <laughs> yes. Um, you almost find yourself sympathizing more with Don even though he is – most definitely the guilty party um and and betty is very much the wounded party but yet i have a hard time feeling sympathetic for betty and i'm i'm sure a lot of that is the way they're planning it you know because again you know john ham's don draper is the 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 linchpin of the show and you know you definitely want to have that attachment to him as a character um so if it's done on purpose it's brilliant if it's not um i'm very curious as to how um January Jones's performance of uh, Emma Frost is going to come off in X Men First Class. Um, well, we certainly know she can do Ice Queen. Yes, <laughs> that is true. And from the pictures I've seen, she can definitely um, wear the the Emma Frost get up very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so, so I'm really curious because if if um, if I see First Class and I find that she has some range um, and and puts on a good performance, uh, then kudos to the to the Mad Men writing staff because they they completely nailed it. Um, in their purpose, mm-hmm. um, for sure. Um, but you know, like Jordan said, they, they touch on a lot of um, taboos. You could tell that this is kind of the coming of, you know, almost like a sexual revolution in, in the country, where things that um, were previously not talked about publicly um, are are starting to to make it to the forefront. You know, we're seeing television television commercials for and ads in magazine ads for feminine products and like bras and underwear and and things like that that um were a little um I would imagine risqué at the time and and that's kind of um Peggy's uh, in is is you know giving the 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 female perspective on a lot of um the advertising and and helping them target to that demographic um so just like I said, very immersed in the period. I mean, you you look at people's houses and you know the old stoves and um, you know can openers and just different devices that they have, and you know they're revolutionary. Um, you know, Don goes out to the fridge, grabs a beer, and he actually has a bottle. O- you know, not a bottle opener, but a um, um, you know an old school can opener, like you'd open an old you know can of oil where you had to you know um, pop open both sides of the can to be able to drink out of it. There was no even no. Not even a, a ring pull, you know, like uh, a pull tab, you know, like we'd see uh, in the 70s uh, and moving forward. So they're very much in tune with um, the, the world of the, of the 60s. 
Another character we haven't touched on yet is uh, Kiernan Shipka. She plays Sally Draper, Don and Betty's daughter. And this is uh, to touch on Walking Dead for a second. One of the things I'm most excited about with um, with Carl on The Walking Dead is the track record AMC has with Kiernan Shipka as, as her character working with child actors. I mean, she's she's always been in the show for all, all the seasons, but especially this most recent season this girl who I believe is 12, uh, she's eight in the first season, but I believe in real life she's 12 or 13. She's showing great range. They're, they're building storylines around her and how her parents' terrible behavior is impacting her as a human being, how she is going to be in the first teenager generation as the series moves on. And if they can work with her this well. And granted, this could just be that she's an awesome actress, even at this young age. But if they can work with her this well, I'm very interested to see what they can do with Carl in the upcoming seasons of The Walking Dead. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it, again, you, you hit it on the head, Jordan. She is kind of the hidden gem of the show. And, it, and it's interesting to see um, Don's relationship with, with his daughter grow and that he seems a little more in tune to you know Sally being a kid than, than her mom. Her mom kind of treats her very meanly. Um, and, and doesn't, you know, and, and their relationship, I could see as the show moves on, can get, can get very fractured um, and have her, um, you know, leaning more towards, towards Don. And we kind of saw that there was one episode that was pretty cool that um, I, w- I won't say she runs away from home, but she pretty much leaves school, gets on a train um, and then a bus and this stranger – just to, again to show you how times are different, this lady sees that she's a little child on a bus and takes her, walks her to um, her father's office on Madison Avenue, and um, you know because she's just you know at that point where she's she's had it with her mother and she's you know again nine ten years old and and doing all this. Um, it was really interesting, and then of course the play between the mother and the father um, was was interesting as well. But a lot of great characters, a lot of great writing. Um, it, it again, very much thrown into it being a, a period piece. Um, Christina Hendricks, uh, her, her uh, Joan Holloway is kind of the office manager, and um, so it's kind of funny to see her act with the rest of the staff. And she kind of rules with a uh, maybe not, maybe Iron Fist is a little heavy-handed, but she definitely that's her office, and she runs it the way. Um, she wants, and she doesn't take any guff from um, uh, from the men in the office. And she, you know, that's one of the things she tries to instill in Peggy early on is is to um, to stand up for herself and to you know assert herself because otherwise, you know, the, these men are going to walk all over. Her. Yeah, and there's so many other great characters in the show as well. I mean, nearly anyone who's been on the show for more than an episode or two has had great lines, has had um, interesting storylines. I mean, Paul Kinsey. Lane Price, played by the incredible Jared Harris, who um, he's a English businessman who comes over from across the pond and has a lot to do in the series, especially lately. Uh, Ken Cosgrove in the show, Harry Crane, who Mm -hmm. um, he's the guy who kind of sees that, hey, this this TV thing might be kind of big. And he builds himself a little niche in, in the ad for in the advertising department in buying television ads and building television campaigns and kind of builds his own career where he sees that opening. Yeah, and then the other character that I really enjoyed and he he was kind of short uh had had a bit of a short stint and was almost like a guest player that would come up uh every now and then is uh Freddie Rumson who was played by Joel Murray, you know, one of the one of the Murray brothers. Um he's been in a lot of TV bit parts, you'd know him if you've seen him. And he just plays up a straight up alcoholic and there's a couple scenes in in this uh, show that are both um, 
I, I guess it's in season two, his, um, it's both sad and funny at the same time, you know, where he really has devolved, um, and his alcoholism has taken over him so much, um, that it's really getting to be a problem. And, uh, and it was, it was nice. He, he, he shows up later again in, in season four, um, you know, kind of, kind of a, a, a new man, so to speak. But, um, I think Joel Murray just did an outstanding job playing, playing Freddie Robinson. The other interesting character, and I, I really think overall he got short shrift, and I didn't really like the way, um, not to give, give away too much, but he, he's in seasons one through three and didn't make it to season four, but is um, Brian uh, Batts, Sal, uh, Sal Romano, who is this big um, Italian-American, um, he's, he's basically a closeted gay man. And um, you could tell, let's say, he, he has a very effeminate air to him, um, but yet he is definitely not out as, as, as being gay. And he even, um, you know, between seasons, he even, you know, takes a wife at his mother's, kind of at his mother's insistence and marries this woman and, and goes on that he's a married man. Um, but then we see behind the scenes where um, you know, he has a couple encounters, you know, with, with other men. And, um, you know, I, I really think I won't spoil, you know, kind of how how he um, exits the show, so to speak. But I really I really thought they were going to do more with him. I really thought he was a he was just a great character. Um, I, I hope they bring him back. I think the I, way that they left it, they definitely could do that in the future. But yeah, he's definitely been missed this past season. Yeah. Yeah. I really I really enjoy his his character. And a lot of it had to do with the complexity. Um, a lot of it. Just I liked the way he handled the business end of it. You know, he was kind of like the um, orchestrator behind the scenes of uh, uh, of a lot of what was going on uh, as far as the ads. You know, actually running the ads and bringing in talent and and having a vision for how th- how you know commercials and and ads and things like that should be directed. Um, and and like I said, so I really really hope that he pops up again. I really thought based on the way the the fourth season went. That he would um, come back into the show, but it's definitely I, I would say the door's not completely closed on on Sal Romano, but I I really hope they they come back in. Definitely. And then Lane Price, um, who you mentioned, Jared Harris, which is the son of of the great actor Richard Harris. Um, yeah, you might have seen him recently. He was on the first season of Fringe. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he's had a lot of roles. He's one of those guys that you've just kind of seen in other things. He's got a very distinctive uh, face and voice, mm-hmm. but uh, absolutely wonderful in the show. Yes. Yeah, I was really. I, I wasn't sure how I was going to take it when he came into the show because it was again it was a um, a pretty big deal um, the, you know the, the change that that took place um, but I think they pulled they pulled it off well you know, I hate to say too much because we don't really want to spoil a whole lot but um, but again you know just uh, I can't, can't can't recommend it enough it, I think the fourth season is getting ready to come out on DVD and Blu-ray within the next month I, I think Jordan that sounds about right. So definitely check it out. You can get all right now all three seasons. Um, they're 13 episodes a piece on Netflix. I don't believe they're on. They're not on Instant Watch, um, but you can definitely get the discs um, for sure. And I just I can't recommend it enough. Like I said, I was kind of a naysayer for a long time. I burned through seasons one through three in time to catch up for season four to show up. And it was awesome because he was emailing me back and forth, and I had to yeah. like keep from spoiling him, and uh, it, it was awesome. Yeah, I, I literally burned through, I think, those three seasons in maybe two and a half weeks or three weeks. And I, I just, did the I was, same thing before season three with seasons one and two. I kind of had the same exact experience, just a year removed. And 
it's hard waiting a week or even a year for a new season. Oh man, I tell you. But I, and like I said, it's just one of those things. Once it kind of found its its hook, um, I, I was just just you know it just it just took me. Um, and like I said, the character the characterization and everything else is just phenomenal. So um, you know, not not to beat a ho- dead horse too much, but definitely check out Mad Men. Just a, just a ton of fun. Just an absolute you know one of the one of the best shows on TV without a doubt. And then. Also on AMC, they've had several shows. They'd had a miniseries remake of The Prisoner, which I didn't mind, but I know a lot of people who were fans of the original didn't love. They had one season of a show called Rubicon, which had a devoted fan base, but it was very small. And with the uh, great success of Walking Dead, it did not get picked up for a second season. They've got another show coming up soon called The Killing, which is based on a Norwegian television murder mystery, and that looks really good. They just put out a trailer, but... The one show that we are going to talk about here and is personally my favorite drama on television, and that is by far, even with like uh, Lost, I was a huge fan of, and we've done on, on Legion of Dues and the extended edition, we did lots of Lost coverage, so we won't get into that. But e- even in that last season of Lost where I was watching Breaking Bad, Breaking Bad still comes out as my favorite show, hands down, across the board on television, acting, writing, uh, the cinematography, everything about it is just uh, heads and tails above just about anything else on television. Yeah, I, I'm a huge – again, this is another one. I'm a little late to the party. I got caught up in time to, to catch up on the last season because I've, I've got um, – you know, being with the satellite, I subscribed to AMC. So when I started watching it, they were into the third season was showing. And so I you know, DVR'd. DVR'd it until I got to the point where I was caught up with seasons one and two, and this one took me by surprise because I didn't think this would be a show that I would really uh, be too interested in. You know, it's kind of heavy into drug culture, um, but as as you find out very quickly, um, there's a lot more to the show than just um, than just the title and and a and a, and a short description, um, and the fact that it has Brian Cranston, who most people know as the kind of inept father of in Malcolm in the Middle. And in some ways the character he plays of of um of, of Walter White is is like um the character he played on Malcolm in the Middle and in a lot of ways is very much not like the character that he played on Malcolm in the Middle. This show is very much the birth of a drug kingpin or a supervillain in some ways. So it, it, it you definitely get that dichotomy of his character on Malcolm in the Middle, but as he changes into kind of a horrible, hardened human being. Yeah, it, it's you know just kind of talk a little bit about the show's premise and nothing we're I'm giving away you won't figure out within probably the first twenty minutes of of the show. Um, <laughs> we we find out that Walter White was a. I saw it in the early on, and correct me if I'm wrong, Jordan, because they never brought it up again, or they haven't brought it up since, but he was a Nobel Prize winning chemist. I don't know if he won the prize or if it was like his boss won the prize on a project that he worked on as well. It was kind of confusing, and yeah, you're right. They haven't touched on it a whole lot, although every once in a while they they hint at it a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Um, It's kind of the one area of the show that's covered in enough mystery and shadow that I don't know that I love it. But it, it's like the one maybe weak point of the entire series. And I think at some point they'll get to it. I'm hoping they will at least. But anyway, there was there was a Nobel Prize framed you know, uh, plaque that, that's somewhere – I forget if, it's, if, if they just show it in passing or whatever. Um, but we find out – and then they do some flashbacks in here. We find out that Walter White was a very advanced chemist um, that, that worked on some pretty advanced stuff. 
and through what through machinations and things that happened that were at this point we're really not sure. Um, he ends up kind of falling out of favor with with his crew or with his group in the university um, in his, his doctoral program or whatever, and so he ends up being a high school chemistry teacher with a just turning sixteen son that has cerebral palsy and a pregnant wife and. Um, he drives kind of a crappy car, lives in an average house, um, and he works a second job in a car wash just to kind of make ends meet. So he you know, works as this chemistry teacher all day, then runs to his job at the car wash, then runs home and you know, trying to, to you know, get things straight for his family. And we fi- he, he ends up getting sick, and we find out that he has terminal lung cancer. And he starts to panic. He doesn't tell his family that that's what's wrong with him. And he starts to really be concerned about how he's going to provide for his family because at this point his wife does not work, and again his son has has cerebral palsy, so there's there's a lot of medical things you know going on in, in long term care that he's going to need, and of course a, a a child on the way. And his brother in law is a DEA agent, and after going out on a ride out with his brother in law, who um, and then seeing on TV about his drug busts, and he sees all this mountains of cash that are flying around from these people cooking meth, and um, he goes on this drug bust and sees one of his ex-students um, climbing out of the window of the, ho- of the house next door to where um, the drug bust is going. Walter decides to, to, to go to his ex-student and ask him if he'd be his partner in cooking methamphetamine so, they can make, so he can basically make enough money in cash to take care of his family after he dies. Because at this point, he's got, I think they said, you know, maybe six months to live at this point. Something um, like that, yeah. Yeah, very, very short period of time to live in. So all of this happens, like I said, within the first 20 minutes of the show. And honestly and truly, it gets worse from there. Um, <laughs> you know, this is like if you've seen that movie Very Bad Things where every time you're watching it, you're like, okay, this this can't get any worse. This guy's life can't get any worse. The things going on can't get any worse. It gets worse. Um, and it's just an absolute train wreck to watch and see how Walter's going to wiggle his way out of this scenario um, to either keep from being killed or discovered or arrested or you know whatever's going on, um, and he always you know finds a way to mostly come out clean um, and and the way things go. the The show has kind of like a, I guess you call it not a not a not like Tarantino nonlinear style, but there is a nonlinear style where there's a lot of times they'll tease something in the very beginning of the show. Um, and then you won't see it until later as to what that actually means. There was a th- thing running through season two, which where was brilliant. It was awesome. Where you kept seeing like a burnt up doll, things floating in a pool. You know, just these uh, you know guys showing up in um, in hazmat suits and little tiny snippets at the beginning of of each episode, like maybe ten or fifteen seconds. And you're really trying to put it together. And it's not until the very last episode of the season where it all you're like, oh, okay, that's what that was all about. Um, and it was interesting that they had planned that season out ahead of time when things would happen. Those those sequences, which Russ mentioned, are all black and white, and they only happen in I think four episodes and I, I won't spoil why they only happen in those four episodes but if you watch season two and you all should because it's a fantastic a season of television look up what those meant or or look up the secret behind them and how they kind of told you the ending of the season and how those worked out i don't want to say too much like i said because it would get into spoiler territory but they hid 
a major spoiler for the show itself in the show in just an ingenious way. Yeah. So we follow up season two, which, as we said, was incredibly strictly regimented and scripted, and they had everything planned out beforehand. And then the writers decided to do something completely different for season three. They made it up as they went along. And if you're like me, that could kind of chill your blood. If you're a TV watcher, you know, there was always those complaints with Lost or shows like that of they don't know what they're doing. They're just making it up as they go along. Well, for season three of Breaking Bad, they literally were. The writers would, every episode or every couple episodes, write Walter White and his compatriots into corners, not knowing how they were going to get him out of them. And then the next episode, they would have to write a new way for him to get out of those uh, those traps, those machinations, those really bad circumstances. And I tell you, if there's one season of television I could say I was on my, the edge of my seat the entire time, it is season three of Breaking Bad because it is – they're flying by the seat of their pants, but it's still incredibly well-written, incredibly tense. And like I said, my, my favorite season of television uh, of all time. Yeah, it was it was pretty phenomenal. Um, and like you said, you hit it right on the on the head, Jordan. Just edge of your seat every episode. And it and it's interesting to see this is like the real transformation of of Walter White, uh, uh, Brian Cranston's character, um, from season one to to go from season one episode one to that very last episode of of season three. Was uh, I mean, if you really do a comparison, it's like two different people. Um, and I, I can't imagine as this show goes on, if it goes on for one or even two more seasons, um, how much more he's he's going to be transformed. Um, it's it's just incredible. I mean, there's a reason Cranston's won it. What two two years in a row? He won the three the, years three? in a row. It hasn't happened in like thirty years, but he won the Emmy for best after three years in a row. So we've already talked about Walter. We've talked about his wife just a little bit, and their son uh, who has, as you said, cerebral palsy. This show, though, has no lack of great characters, just like Mad Men. AMC's slogan, or one of them, is characters matter here, and that's certainly the case. I would say, though, my favorite characters in Breaking Bad are the villains. This show has some fantastic real world, even though they're slightly heightened in their sense of um, <laughs> their sense of reality, but the, the, these awesome villains. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the cousins from this past season, Tuco from seasons one and two... Saul Goodman, who's not really a villain so much as he has just a really shady lawyer. Um, He is (laughs) – I I believe when – in the first episode you meet him, he explains, you know, if you get into trouble, you want a criminal lawyer. If you want to stay out of trouble, you hire a criminal lawyer. (laughs) And and Bob Odenkirk is just hilarious in the role. I mean it's it's fantastic. Mm -hmm. And – one of the, I guess you'd call him Walter's partner in crime from from the get go, Aaron um, Paul, who has Aaron had Paul. just a fantastic season. Yeah, I. It's funny. He's like the character you love to hate because he acts like a jackass all the time. Um, and in the first season, it was just kind of funny because he wouldn't pay attention to anything. And then you know you see him get a little more hardcore, and then he kind of has his bouts. Um, you know, in and out of of drug abuse and his ability to handle it or not, and one of my favorite—not to give too too much away, but just to kind of set it up—there are a lot of literally laugh out loud moments in the first season. And the, and the first season was short; it was a six episode season for season one. Yeah, then, seven. They were going to do more, but then the writer strike happened, and they yeah. uh, they kind of just ended. It was weird, but it, it yeah, worked out yeah. really well for the show. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, 
but you know Walter being a chemist and understanding how things have to happen um, there's a, there's a situation they get into where they have to let's just say dispose of some uh, um, organic material and it's uh, <laughs> a good way of putting it yeah and Walter specifically tells Jesse exactly what to get and of course Jesse can't find exactly what he's looking for finds the chemicals but not the container and decides to dispose of this organic material in the bathtub and I won't spoil what happens, and you could totally see it coming a mile away, exactly what's going to happen. And sure enough, it, it exactly does. And it was just – it was so horrible that it was funny at the same time. Oh, it's, it's um, absolutely gross, but it's yes. fantastic at the same yes. time. <laughs> yes. I'll, I'll counter that with one of my favorite things from season three. And uh, like I said, they were painting the characters into corners at every chance they could and then only finding a way to get them out of those jams later on. And there, <laughs> there's a jam, and, I, and granted, this is for me as a law student something I particularly like because it involves law and statutes. But Jesse and Walter find themselves trapped in an RV, which is one of the main set pieces from the first three seasons. Mm-hmm. They f- they're trapped in the RV in the junkyard. They're trying to get rid of this evidence before the DEA can can catch them. And the next thing they know, they're alone in this RV, and outside the the DEA is right there, and it's just this. 20 minutes of they're going to get caught, they're going to get caught, they're going to get caught. And the way they get out of this this jam involves Jesse, involves a lot of that humor, involves um, the proprietor of the junkyard who springs into some laws about why they can't go into – why the DEA can't go into the RV because they could do a search of a motor vehicle but not of a domicile. And since they, no one actually saw the RV drive in, as far as I know, the RV is there as a domicile. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I, I can't really get into the specifics because of spoilers and some of the language involved. But let's just say it's hilarious and tense and just a prime example of why we love this show. Yes. And it's it, this is one of those, those shows – we kind of talked a little bit last week on The Walking Dead. But this absolutely has a – unrated component to the to the dvd video releases where we see um even i guess a little nudity a lot more harsh yeah in the pilot there was like a weird deal for like the first season where i think it was like ifc was like co-producing or something and so there was like an unrated version and a rated version but on the dvd you get the the latter of course um it's kind of weird so it it hits more adult things than madman madman does but not nothing ridiculous yeah, I mean, there's just you know you, a few more f bombs and a lot. The language is a lot more harsh um, on the on the video release, and you could tell in the in the in the regular series where they've either you know made a quick cut or um, they've kind of co- muffled over you know some things that you know again the DVD release. Um, and, and Vince Gilligan, the showrunner for the for the show, you know there are those several times like there's a, a one episode called IFT where the F stands for exactly what we can't say here, and they didn't say mm-hmm. in the show they they muffled it. But where, as he said, is no other word would fit. Yes. The characters would not say another word. Another word would not make sense in this world or the real world or any world in between. And preparing it for the DVD audience, they'll put it in there and they'll just – they'll not believe it, but they usually drop the sound. And um, it, it really helps – adds to the real world qualities of the show. So one of the things about Aaron Paul, like I said, he, he kind of – his character of Jesse Pinkman, and I'm sure that's just the way he's written, really goes hot and cold with me as far as whether I like him or want to punch him in the face or um, you know, uh, dissolve his body in a vat of acid. 
but uh, he did win. I guess it's the best supporting actor Emmy for this past this past season for his character of Jesse Pinkman, and uh, um, it, it, it he's just the way he portrays that character is just so odd because he goes from being completely self centered and self destructive to you know trying to change um, his ways and and but yet also kind of looking out for himself and. Uh, it's it's he his character has such a weird dynamic, especially when you compare to Walter, because they constantly go from on the outs with each other to working together out of necessity to back on the outs to you know to whatever. And I, I guess uh, I'm curious to what you think, Jordan. But I'm always curious with with the Jesse character whether him and Walter are going to truly have, and I guess they have to some degree, but just really have this moment where they connect with each other and they come to a mutual understanding and just have constant respect and almost a, a standard friendship um, between them. And it just seems like whenever they get to that point where you think that's the way it's going to go, something happens and then it, it, it doesn't happen. <laughs> well, I mean, their, their conflicts always seem to stem from the fact that Walter wants to be in control and Jesse just wants more drugs and Jesse's um, his addiction and his problems with addiction and, Dealing with all those intricacies of life always seem to be his downfall. Now you're saying you wonder if they'll ever come, ever come to that the realization that they need each other or whatever it is. I think whatever we know so far kind of goes out the window with the cliffhanger of season three, um, simply because who oh, knows yeah. where it goes from there. Yes, but yeah, it's it's kind of the ever present question: Will they ever resolve their issues or not? Um, I think they were close possibly at the end of season three, but now I have no idea. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. And, but definitely Aaron Paul last season, I mean, he's been asked to do a lot throughout all three seasons. Season three was the time where he was kind of beaten to a pulp literally and figuratively and had to rebuild himself as a human being and what he went through and what he put other people through. I mean, the way yeah. he portrayed that was just amazing. Yeah. Some of the best acting he's done as a guy who's not always considered the strongest actor of the show, and that's not really a knock on him. It's just a show full of tremendous actors. To yeah. see him do what he did, uh, the Emmy was very well deserved. Yeah, no, I to totally agree with you. So that's Jesse. That's his Walter's meth partner. <laughs> meth partner. Meth partner. Heterosexual life mate or whatever. Yes, yes, heterosexual meth mate. But Walter's non well, it is still heterosexual, but his uh, his sexual life mate, his wife, Skylar, played by uh, Zabby Gunn. I'm going to blank Anna on Gunn. the name. Anna Gunn, who will be in the upcoming movie Red State, uh, from what I understand. There is a possibly even more tumultuous and interesting relationship. Yeah, very much so. It's funny because she's kind of like the younger wife. And I, I say younger. I mean, she's not, you know a 20s trophy wife now maybe but, five seven years or something like that yeah i think she's probably right around 40 i think at one point they mentioned in the show that she's 40 and and walter's 50 so she was you know a little bit you know younger than him she's still a very attractive woman um and for what the first two and a half seasons she's pregnant <laughs> <laughs> that um, was kind of a joke even because of all the scheduling difficulties with the with the writer's strike and everything there's a scene in end of episode season two or beginning of season three where uh even the her OBGYN's like so are you ever gonna have this baby <laughs> yeah 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 because the, you know a the show is on 
it's on that you know cable rotation of you know once a year. Um, the first season was a short season, and uh, you know there's only 13 episodes in a season, and they take place over a relatively short period of time. I mean, you know, the show's going into its fourth season, and what would you say? Had, Maybe six months times elapsed, maybe eight months at this point. Six, seven, because there's that gap in between. Yes, season two and three, which we can't right. go into too much. But yeah, there is there is a slight gap there that allows for Walter to get rid of his mustache and, uh, or at least get, change his facial hair and uh, and uh, change his appearance some. Yeah, which is both figurative and uh, literal. Yes, uh, oh, definitely. As, yeah, as that, we that see, whole Walter Eisenberg becomes more and more realized. Yeah. But so over the course of these three se- uh, seasons, Skylar has gone from pregnant mother who has no idea what Walter is doing to the point where she is now in, in the end of season three and the beginning of season four, where not only has she – but she's gone through a lot, but she's almost become complicit in a way. She It almost looks like she could become even worse than Walter. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's one of those – you know, AMC is known for – in their shows – in. Mad Men in Breaking Bad and now in Walking Dead of having the wife character who is seen by many to be a shrew, to be just an awful human being. And in Mad Men, that is certainly the case. In Breaking Bad, I'd say it's a lot more complex. And in Walking Dead, we don't know yet, but we know from the comic where in the comic it went. It could go differently, and I think – that's that's another discussion for another day. But I'd say certainly Anna Gunn here – she does things uh, – her acting and her storyline is much more subtle and interesting than January Jones over in Mad Men. She's got I, a lot more to do here. I agree. Of the two wife characters between these two shows we've been talking about, I definitely um, I definitely feel more attuned with um, Skylar's character and, and Anna Gunn's portrayal and her, her ability to portray or, – or again, like we said, it's the way it's written. Than I do with what January Jones is doing with um, Betty Draper and her character. I'm mean, like, as we've already talked about, Walter has a very interesting story arc. And he's a very interesting character who's well acted and well written. Same with Aaron Paul's Jesse, but her character has kind of come from uh, come from the outfield a little bit and from the sidelines to become a really interesting and integral part of the show of late. Yeah, I would say it's almost like the opposite. Whereas in Mad Men. Um, Betty's character was stronger in the beginning and and had more of a role and has kind of diminished over time. And I think the opposite is true with Mad Men, where Skylar White's character was kind of, you know, kind of, I guess, the typical wife, I guess you would say, maybe a little um, um, over yeah, overbearing, maybe not the quite the the right term. But as this as the series gone on, she's definitely become more interesting and more involved with what's going on as as opposed to the other way around. So interesting uh, dichotomy between those two characters on those two shows. So then one of the a couple of the other characters we'll we'll go through real quick and then and then we'll wrap up. Are Dean Norris who plays Hank Schrader, and Hank is Anna's brother-in-law. Um, Hank is married to Anna's sister Marie. Who's played by Betsy Brandt, not Betty Brandt from from the Spider-Man comics, but Betsy She's, Brandt. That is correct. She's not played by a fictional character. That is correct. Um, who I probably tend to like her least of all the characters in the show is is Marie. Um, she's got kind of some quirks to her, 
and she acts kind of funky and I mean without getting too spoilers as to what her deal is, she definitely has a, a fallacy to her character, but I, I just I find her the least interesting, I guess, of all. Cool but Hank though. I'm sorry? It's a cool hair though. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um but Hank is a DEA agent and like we talked about earlier, he's kind of the one that that really sparks Walter's uh, interest in the fact that uh, cooking meth is uh, can be a lucrative business until the feds come and take all your stuff or um, gang lords kill you or you go to prison for the rest of your life. Um, but he's just this very tough, very overly – he's in, he's a very much an over-the-top character. He's overly sarcastic. He's overly macho. He's overly um, – you, you know, very, I guess what you would call, um, I guess maybe he's kind of like that uncle you have that says inappropriate stuff, you know, a lot, or, um, you know, maybe doesn't, um, is, is, I don't want to say bigoted because that's maybe, um, maybe too strong, but, um, in, in many ways, he's almost a parody in the beginning of the show of like a Michael Chiklis type character. Yes. Yes. But, but definitely without the, um, you know, shooting your partner in the head in the first ten minutes of episode one, kind of thing. Um, but but yeah, I, I agree. Very you know, very much in that same vein. Um, and then something happens to to Hank where it kind of really questions his his um, his ability to to be the man that he's been in the show up until that point. In an um, amazing scene featuring part of Danny Trejo. Yes. Possibly one of the funnier things on the show. Yes. <laughs> and, and, and most horrible at the same time. Yes. Ab- yes, absolutely. Um, but – and it's funny because Hank uh, obviously being on the DEA side um, you know, ends up – I don't think this is a spoiler – ends up unbeknownst to him basically tracking his own tra- – trying to track down his own brother-in-law or, or get to the bottom of, of you know, his, his brother-in-law's deeds without knowing – that it's his brother-in-law, um, and again, he's you know he's trying to, to contend with the fact that his brother-in-law is dying and how it affects his family and and uh, and his nephew and and those kind of things. And I, I like Hank a lot. I just like his his over-the-topness. I like his um, his inappropriateness um, a lot, especially in the office with his coworkers and everything else. Um, I so didn't I, like I, him in the beginning so much, but now, especially after episodes like One Minute, which is my favorite episode oh, of last God. season, oh, I mean, yeah. it's literally my favorite hour of television ever. Um, after what he did in that episode and what happened to him, uh, he he's definitely shot to the top of my list in terms of I want to know more about this character and see him on screen more. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, so yeah, if you're on the fence about the show, when you get to about that halfway point of season three, it's just it, it'll blow you away, um, <laughs> literally and, then, and figuratively. Yes, and then of course how you know to the end of season three. Um, again, one of the I think one of the great cliffhangers in television when you get to the end of season three, um, you know for sure. So so again, Dean Norris is Hank. I think is a, maybe a little underrated, but I think it's just a great character. I think he does a great job portraying portraying him. Um, the other character is R.J. Mitty, who plays Walter White Jr., um, who for a while changes his name to uh, – what does he change his name to? He wants to be known as uh, – Flynn. Yeah, not necessarily a Tron reference, but it could be. Yeah, yeah, Flynn, which is kind of, kind of bizarre. But um, uh, Walter, White, Walter Jr. has cerebral palsy, and uh, it's interesting because – 
the way and and in looking at, at a little bit of history on RG Mitty, apparently when he was younger, he had a very very mild form of cerebral palsy that he's learned to overcome. And apparently, he did a lot of um, studying of of people that actually have the condition um, and learn from it. But he he I think he does a phenomenal job of of playing that part and and just the, his speech pattern and the way he moves and everything else. I mean. You wouldn't know that he didn't have that affliction if if you knew he didn't have that. You know he didn't have it. Um, I, I think I think he's he's one of the more underrated um, actors on the show for sure. Oh, I honestly didn't know until right now that he didn't have cerebral palsy. So that's very interesting to know. He definitely yeah. pulls it off. Yeah. So just again, outstanding, outstanding job for such a young a young actor to to do that. And I'm surprised that he hasn't gotten, you know, like a supporting um, actor nod or anything like that. I guess maybe his role is just a little too small. Probably. Um, yeah. Or when you compare him to, to Aaron Paul with, with a little bit bigger part, but, but again, just does a very good job of trying to contend with the fact that, um, you know, what's going on with his father and, and with his mother and how his father and his mother react and, and, you know, things, things that are happening. Um, while he's trying to grow up with uh, knowing that, that he's going to have a considerably younger sibling on the way. And then we have a, an interesting character pair, Gustavo Gusfring and Mike, just Mike. Uh, Gus, Gustavo Gus is uh, the owner of a chicken franchise of a uh, KFC Chick-fil-A type franchise of chicken restaurants. And he's also a meth kingpin. And Mike is his hitman slash private investigator who is awesome. Yeah, I like Mike a, a lot. Um, Especially after the season three finale. Yeah, yeah. And he is played by um, Jonathan Banks. And he's like one of those veteran character actors. He was in the, where I notice him the, the most. And every time I see him, it immediately takes me back is he was in Beverly Hills Cop. And uh, he played he played Zach in Beverly Hills Cop, which is the guy that, of course, if you've seen Beverly Hills Cop, is like the main henchman of Victor Maitland, the the main bad guy in Beverly Hills Cop. He's the one that kills um, Eddie Murphy's part, you know, ex uh, friend from from school, um, you know, in the very beginning, and and him and and Eddie Murphy face off a lot. But every time I see him, that he's forever the guy from from Beverly Hills Cop for me. And he's like, uh, how would you describe Mike? Almost, I mean, you said he's kind of like his bodyguard, henchman. He's almost like a fixer, I guess you'd call him. You know, yeah, like some- he's very much that uh, Winston Wolf from yes. Pulp Fiction. Maybe a little bit more grandfatherly in many regards. And yeah. we know a lot more about his character than Winston Wolf. We know that he kind of does regard himself as a good guy and wants to be a good guy, but he does some pretty dark things to make sure that his. Uh, you know that his family will be that there'll be food on the table essentially. Exactly, exactly. Uh, and then you, you wanted to talk about Gus, so I don't really have a whole lot to say about him. I just wanted to connect the two characters. Yeah, I mean, just you know, Giancarlo Esposito again, another one of those. You know, I guess you call him character actors. He's been in countless, you know, countless TV shows and and movies over the years. Um, I I think he's he's an excellent actor. I mean, just it, I I can't think of. You know, he's one of those guys too. You know, where when you see him in something, you're like, "Oh yeah, I know exactly, exactly who who that is." But you know, he's again, he's been in just countless 
TV and 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 movies or TV shows and movies, you know, over the years, and I think he does a, an outstanding job um, in this. Very, um, he's very mild mannered. I mean, given given who he really is, um, he is very mild mannered and very low key um, for a reason. I mean, obviously, he's trying to trying to you know stay that way, um, you know, for, for you know for a reason to to keep under the under the radar. Um, for sure, he was in Miami Vice. He's been in a couple Spike Lee movies. He was in the, a couple episodes of the TV show The Equalizer, um, The Cotton Club. If you've seen The Cotton Club, um, Trading Places. He was one of the cellmates in Trading Places. So he's kind of been been all over the map as as far as his his acting career goes. Um, but again, as the, I think as the, as his his character arc um, continues in the uh, in the series, he becomes a little more vocal, a little more involved uh, in in what's going on. But just in just a like I said, when you when you're first introduced to him, um, not what you would expect by any any means. And, and it's kind of funny because he uh, he operates a chain of like like uh, Jordan said, chicken restaurants called Los Pollos Brothers, and uh, and the Los Pollos Brothers is like one of the, the major. Uh, supporters for charity causes for the DEA, so it's it's really kind of funny how um, how the two the two play off each other. So so that that kind of rounds out the cast, so to speak, of uh, Breaking Bad. Yes, sir. In finishing, I, I guess they've just announced that the season three Blu-ray is going to be out. I think in early early June or late May. Uh, basically just in time for season four to start on on amc so do yourself a favor and pick that up absolutely absolutely i mean you, you know even if you don't want to go out and and you know buy the discs or whatnot you know get them on on netflix um you know run them that way but it's definitely um worth it um you know to pick to pick it up i think they're pretty reasonably typically the amc stuff is usually pretty reasonably priced when it gets to to dvd and blu-ray um but yeah, just again, these two shows just have really taken me completely by surprise, and um, I have Jordan to thank for a lot of that because he's really been beating the drum. Uh, like I said on Mad Men, my dad beat the drum on Mad Men for a long time, and finally I was just like, you know what, I, I need to, um, you know, see what it's all about and and check it out, and um, I'm, I couldn't be happier that I did because it's just it's it's these two shows are just. Some of the best stuff on television, and and I think a lot of stuff on TV these days is, you know, fairly mediocre. And it's really fi- hard to find a show that really would captivate you that you you just can't wait to the next episode. I think maybe Lost was the last one that really did that for me, where I just really felt like if I had that disc in the player and it was twelve thirty at night and I just finished an episode, that I have to watch the next one. Um, and it's it's not very often that that I find myself doing that. Yeah, like Russ said, I cannot speak highly enough of these shows. They're absolutely fantastic. And if you're not watching them, you're doing yourself a disservice. If you like Walking Dead, check these shows out. They don't have zombies, but they have lots of other awesome stuff. But that's it for this week. We, we've spent a lot of time on these two shows. We'll be back in, uh, in uh, two weeks with another episode with actual news about Walking Dead and tons of good stuff. There's a lot of uh, a lot of news that's been piling up here, so we'll have a lot to talk about. You can leave us a voicemail at 516-468-7912. Send us an email at comments at walkingdeadtv.com. 
Don't forget on the same feed or on the main master feed, if you're not subscribed to that one, check out Half Hour Wasted on Mondays and Legion of Dudes on Thursdays. You can find them both at hhwlod.com. Don't forget to check out our brand new Media Minute show, which has media reviews in five minutes or less. Comics, movies, television. If if it comes out and it's media and it's geek-friendly, we're going to be reviewing it. Don't forget to check out our Facebook groups for all those shows, LOD, HHW, WDTV, and Media Minutes. And of course, you can follow us on Twitter at WDTV Podcast or at HHWLOD underscore network. You can follow me at Jordan FRM Jersey and Russ at R Latham. So until there's no more room in hell and the dead walk the earth, remember, zombies are awesome and all, but when puss comes to shove, I'd much rather watch chain-smoking chauvinistic alcoholics and meth-feeling cancer-ridden chemistry teachers every time. But that's just me. Have a good week. Good night. Totally slag on AMC's version of the Prisoner because I hated it so much. (laughs) If you want to do it as a separate thing, because we kind of talked about the Prisoner for three seconds in the middle of the episode, but oh, okay, never mind. All right, so I'm muting now. I'm sorry. It would be funny though if it's all of a sudden you just jump in and you never say anything (laughs) else the rest of the episode. (laughs) 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 Fuck you, AMC. (laughs) You had two great actors. You. Wasted. <laughs> you took everything away from the premise that was cool about it. Lenny James was in that too, from Walking Dead. Oh yeah, he was the oh. taxi driver or whatever. Yeah, Ian McKellen and and the Prisoner property. You can't make that work. I'm sorry.